You do. In the following pages, we reassess some of the most important science of our time. We question the deepest assumptions brought to contemporary views of marriage, family structure, and sexuality, issues affecting each of us every day and every night. We'll show that human beings evolved in intimate groups where almost everything was shared, food, shelter, protection, child care, even sexual pleasure. We don't argue that humans are natural-born Marxist hippies, nor do we hold that romantic love was unknown or unimportant in prehistoric communities, but we'll demonstrate that contemporary culture misrepresents the link between love and sex. With and without love, a casual sexuality was the norm of our prehistoric ancestors. Let's address the question you're probably already asking. How can we possibly know anything about sex in prehistory? Nobody alive today was there to witness prehistoric life. And since social behavior leaves no fossils, isn't this all just wild speculation? Not quite. There's an old story about the trial of a man charged with biting off another man's finger in a fight. An eyewitness took the stand. The defense attorney asked, Did you actually see my client bite off the finger? The witness said, Well, no, I didn't. Aha, said the attorney with a smug smile. How then can you claim he bit off the man's finger? Well, replied the witness, I saw him spit it out. In addition to a great deal of circumstantial evidence from societies around the world and closely related non-human primates, we'll take a look at some of what evolution has spit out. We'll examine the anatomical evidence still evident in our bodies with the yearning for sexual novelty expressed in our pornography, advertising, and after-work happy hours. We'll even decode messages in the so-called copulatory vocalizations of thy neighbor's wife as she calls out ecstatically in the still of night. Readers acquainted with the recent literature on human sexuality will be familiar with what we call the standard narrative of human sexual evolution, hereafter shortened to the standard narrative. It goes something like this. Number one, boy meets girl. Number two, boy and girl assess one another's mate value from perspectives based upon their differing reproductive agendas slash capacities. He looks for signs of youth, fertility, health, absence of previous sexual experience, and likelihood of future sexual fidelity. In other words, his assessment is skewed toward finding a fertile, healthy young mate with many childbearing 
years ahead and no current children to drain his resources. She looks for signs of wealth, or at least prospects of future wealth, social status, physical health, and likelihood that he will stick around to protect and provide for their children. Her guy must be willing and able to provide materially for her, especially during pregnancy and breastfeeding, and their children known as male parental investment. Number three, boy gets girl. Assuming they meet one another's criteria, they mate, forming a long-term pair bond, the fundamental condition of the human species, as famed author Desmond Morris put it. Once the pair bond is formed, she will be sensitive to indications that he is considering leaving, vigilant towards signs of infidelity involving intimacy with other women that would threaten her access to his resources and protection while keeping an eye out around ovulation, especially for a quick fling with a man genetically superior to her husband. He will be sensitive to signs of her sexual infidelities, which would reduce his all-important paternity certainty, while taking advantage of short-term sexual opportunities with other women, as his sperm are usually easily produced and plentiful. Researchers claim to have confirmed these basic patterns in studies conducted around the world over several decades. Their results seem to support the standard narrative of human sexual evolution, which appears to make a lot of sense. But they don't, and it doesn't. While we don't dispute that these patterns play out in many parts of the modern world, we don't see them as elements of human nature so much as adaptations to social conditions, many of which were introduced with the advent of agriculture no more than 10,000 years ago. These behaviors and predilections are not biologically programmed traits of our species. They are evidence of the human brain's flexibility and the creative potential of community. To take just one example, we argue that women's seemingly consistent preference for men with access to wealth is not a result of innate evolutionary programming, as the standard model asserts, but simply a behavioral adaptation to a world in which men control a disproportionate share of the world's resources. As we'll explore in detail, before the advent of agriculture a hundred centuries ago, women typically had as much access to food protection, and social support, as did men. We'll see that upheavals in human societies resulting from the shift to settled living in agricultural communities brought radical changes to women's ability to survive. Suddenly, women lived in a world where they had to barter their reproductive capacity for access to the resources and protection they needed to survive. But these conditions are very different from those in which our species had been evolving previously. It's important to keep in mind that when viewed against the full scale of our species' existence, 10,000 years is but a brief moment. Even if we ignore the roughly 2 million years since the emergence of our homo lineage, in which our direct ancestor ancestors lived in small foraging social groups 
Anatomically, modern humans are estimated to have existed as long as 200,000 years, with the earliest evidence of agriculture dating to about 8,000 BCE. The amount of time our species has spent living in settled agricultural societies represents just 5% of our collective experience at most. As recently as a few hundred years ago, most of the planet was still occupied by foragers. So, in order to trace the deepest roots of human sexuality, it's vital to look beneath the thin crust of recent human history. Until agriculture, human beings evolved in societies organized around an insistence on sharing just about everything. But all this sharing doesn't make anyone a noble savage. These pre-agricultural societies were no nobler than you are when you pay your taxes or insurance premiums. Universal, culturally imposed sharing was simply the most effective way for our highly social species to minimize risk. Sharing and self-interest, as we shall see, are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, what many anthropologists call fierce egalitarianism was the predominant pattern of social organization around the world for many millennia before the advent of agriculture. But human societies changed in radical ways once they started farming and raising domesticated animals. They organized themselves around hierarchical political structures, private property, densely populated settlements, a radical shift in the status of women and other social configurations that together represent an enigmatic disaster for our species. Human population growth mushroomed as quality of life plummeted. The shift to agriculture, wrote author Jared Diamond, is a catastrophe from which we have never recovered.